Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Vest, see my vest, made from real gorilla chest. Feel this sweater, there's no better than authentic Irish setter. See this hat, it was my cat, my evening wear vampire bat. These white slippers are albino, African endangered rhino, grizzly bear underwear, turtle's necks, I've got my share. Beret of poodle on my noodle, it shall rest. Try my red robin suit, it comes one breast or two. See my vest, see my vest, oh please, won't you see my vest? I really like the vest. I got it, yeah. <gasps> He's gonna make a tuxedo out of our puppies. Na na na, na na na, na na na. Mark! Sorry, you gotta admit it's catchy. All right, well, Mr. Burns is not a good uh, role model for us to talk about the taxidermy, uh, but there are so, so many other reasons to talk about taxidermy. It sort of is in front of us in an unusual way right now. There's a documentary now that's been making the rounds of art festivals and stuff like that, and I think is uh, going to be available even for wider consumption. It's called Stuffed. It is about kind of a new generation of taxidermists and the way in which they are tutored by the old generation of taxidermists. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about it from several different perspectives, uh, and we are going to talk to a self-styled, self-proclaimed rogue taxidermist? Of course we are. Uh, But we are going to begin with Kristen Arnett, uh, a librarian and queer fiction and essay writer, and she's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Mostly Dead Things, and also a a short fiction collection, Felt in the Jaw, for which she won the uh, Coil Book Award, and she's also a columnist for Literary literary Hub. She's all kinds of things. What she is not, it turns out, although I was kind of surprised to find this out, is a taxidermist, because because Kristen Arnett... Welcome to our show. The The narrator in your book is so incredibly convincing. I mean, I understand what fiction is. I, I get what a novel is. So I get that, you know, you're not a taxidermist. But it seemed, it seemed almost like you had to be. You know, you're not using taxidermy as a little bit of literary ornament, ornamentation. This is a full-on novel about two people who do taxidermy and how it plays out in their father-daughter relationship and then in the rest of her life. So why taxidermy? How did that turn out to be such a perfect metaphor? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because it is very, I would say the book's taking on the role of taxidermy in a very visceral kind of hands-on approach. Uh, Part of the allure for me was at the time when I started writing the novel, I was looking at a lot of taxidermy online. And when I say that, I mean, I was looking at a lot of very bad taxidermy, just like for fun, for my own amusement. And the things I'm obsessive about, like, I think quite naturally sort of find their way into my fiction because I'm, I'm sitting inside of them thinking about them so often. So what was something fun for me, something to kind of mess around on the internet and and procrastinate instead of doing the writing became the actual work itself, I think. So like I read a lot of books, I read a lot of like really old school taxidermy manuals, those breakthrough ones that are like from the late 70s. I watched a lot of videos on YouTube, you'd be very (laughs) 
surprised the kind of content you can see on YouTube. And I also went on a lot of um, web and chat forums to see how taxidermists talked to each other, like the layman's kind of language, like the natural way they talked, because I wanted it to sound authentic when I had the characters talking about opening the animals or the kind of tools they used or tips and tricks or pun intended hacks just to see how it how it looked because I really wanted it to feel like not only a book that featured taxidermy but a book that felt like the whole of it was about taxidermy. Right. Well, let's get give people a sense of how it does seem and sound and feel uh, in the book. This is uh, right at the beginning of the book, and we're just pulling uh, from the audiobook version. Uh, so you're going to hear Jesse Valensky uh, as Jessa Lynn Morton, who is the narrator of this novel. The buck was large, but I'd seen bigger. The deer had already been drained of its blood and lay limp, limbs sprawled like a dismantled puppet. It was a nine-pointer, and the man who'd brought it to the shop was a regular, someone our father had over for beers in our living room. Why the whole deer? This wasn't just a mount. The entire animal would be processed. Chest, rump, legs. I couldn't imagine why someone would keep the whole thing as a trophy. Most hunters left the remains to rot out in the woods after their field prep. Our father's eyes were bright with excitement. It was a new challenge for him a way to put creativity into his work. He hummed under his breath. It made me want to sing, too. Inside was cool with the constant hum of central air, but still humid enough to draw sweat over my lip. The sign in front of the shop was just as big and yellow as it had been when our grandfather ran the place. Morton's Taxidermy and more. Right. We probably should have warned people who'd just eaten or something like that. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get a little visceral at, at times. So um, I just want to take you back to your state of mind as you were learning about this before you knew as much as you know now. Were there things that surprised you, ways in which the truths that you encountered violated your latent suppositions about what taxidermy is? I think so, yes. Because a lot of what I was thinking about taxidermy was very one-dimensional. It was a kind of thing where I was thinking about it as, as everything was taxidermy the same way. And when I started doing research, I very quickly realized that taxidermy is myriad and extremely broad. So right, the way that you taxidermy a fish isn't the way you would taxidermy small game, isn't the way you taxidermy like a larger mount, isn't the way you do a head or a cape or like just a, just a skin mount or the bones. I realized how intense it is and the people that take it on are really taking on something that requires precision, first of all, but something that requires years and years of practice and work and honing skill sets and also just a lot of muscle. Um, and another thing I think I very quickly became enamored with was thinking about the idea of like, who's doing taxidermy, right? Like a lot of the time it's very gendered. So people are oftentimes like a, a specific kind of man is doing taxidermy. Usually people who hunt and are taxiderming their own kill or taking it to people who also hunt. And I was in these web forums and chat forums, like watching people interact. And a thing that was fascinating to me is um, outside of just the tips and tricks they were giving each other was a lot of times people, after they'd worked months and months on something, they would post up a picture of it and be like, this is what I made. And then talk in these very sweeping, beautiful, artistic terms about the thing that they just made. Um, and I was like, oh, this is a way for 
these men who are very traditionally masculine to talk about art in a way that makes it so they can speak about it. It's so they, it feels less gendered to them. It feels less feminine maybe, or uh, less queer. They're able to talk about like something they've made in a creative kind of sense. And because it's couched in, in death, the feelings or having feelings about art is, is accessible to them. And that, that became something that was like mind blowing to me. And I think I, I really wanted to drag a lot of that into the novel after that research. Right. We should say also that it's getting a little less gendered as, as time passes. We'll be oh, talking, absolutely. We're going to be talking yeah. to Beth Bev- Beverly, uh, who's a, a taxidermist uh, in, in the next segment here. And in that documentary, Stuff, do you start to see this new generation um, um, of taxidermists, many of them women. And I don't know how much this is part of the new generation or how much you found it just kind of baked into the whole idea of being a taxidermist. But our reflexive understanding of a taxidermist is somebody who works with dead animals. In, in stuff, it seemed as though one of the arguments they're making is, no, these people love animals. They, yeah. they, love, uh, they love animals. They happen to work with dead animals because that's what they do. But they love animals. Yeah, I would say that that's absolutely embedded in the culture of taxidermy. Many people, right, there's the idea of it being dead, like you mentioned, but the idea of taxidermy is is most of the time to bring something to life. And I think in order to make a dead animal or any kind of dead thing reanimate, there has to be some kind of care put into it, right? You're trying to make something seem as lifelike as the live animal. So any, any kind of interactions I've had with people who do taxidermy Yes, people were like very much not only like loved animals, but usually like owned several pets or had like farms or like kind of like like interacted with animals in like a much broader capacity outside of the taxidermy itself. Right. So uh, there's two themes here that are in the book and and uh, that I want to talk about. Uh, the first one is that notion uh, of immortality. There's a way in which the average person or really no person can bring something dead back to life. And that's not really what you do in taxidermy, but it's uh, maybe about as close as you get. There's a sense anyway that the thing which is ruined, which is drained of life, can be reconstituted so that it, it it's back in the world doing things and affecting being other beings who see it. So uh, maybe you can say a little bit about what that meant to you as you started to create the world of this one particular uh, young woman. Yes, uh, I think it was uh, the thought process of taxidermy being that it's not just the animal itself, it's the memory. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of nostalgia or how we try and curate this thing. So taxidermy a lot of the time isn't necessarily about the animal, it's, it's about a representation of what that animal was or what it meant in that moment. So when people are, right, if they get their hunting kills taxidermied, the idea of it as a trophy right? Or it's an idea of this like moment in time where they had this interaction with the animal and it's posing. So through the writing of this book, taxidermy became not only in terms of the taxidermied animals for me, but a representation of how memory functions. Because uh, taxidermy is absolutely like memory is a kind of taxidermy, right? It's curated, it's fixed, it remains in our minds as this kind of way that we choose to pose something or remember it. And it's very much specific to the person. So the more that I wrote and the more research I did and the more thought I put into what taxidermy can represent, it became like, right, like taxidermy is memory, uh, intimacy, 
seems like a kind of taxidermy, like relationships with other people become like these kinds of taxidermy because they're so fixed and curated and, and reliant on how we decide to remember them. Right. And I want to get right into that relationship part. Although I have to stop and observe that it's good that your dog is also trying to join the show a little bit. <laughs> Um, like, that's like that's also very much me. I have like three dogs. I was yeah. like, it'll be fine. I'll put them in the other room. Well, I, I actually li- listened to the audiobook with my dog Declan, and he found it upsetting at times. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, all right, so I want to talk about the relationship part because it's not. Let's go further. This is. I feel comfortable, psycho notwithstanding. I feel comfortable saying this is by far the most erotic taxidermy work of fiction ever accomplished by anybody. I don't know how crowded a field that is, Kristen, but I'm, <laughs> I, I feel like you, I can put the laurels right on your head right now. So, um, and so it, there's a way in which this character and her, her desire, you know, and, and is, is expressed in, often in images of taxidermy. She says, she says quite frankly about the two women who are objects of her desire that she feels as though if she could just rearrange them, if the, she could arrange their bones a certain way, she, you know, she, they would be hers. And she says, why is it that I can't ever look with desire at the object of my affection and not think about somehow? <laughs> or other, you know, having my way, having my way with them down in the taxidermy shop. So, so tell me what that's about. How how does that sort of real pure eroticism interact with taxidermy for you in in creating this novel? Yeah. Uh, well, a, a few different ways. First of all, taxidermy um, is very much about the body, and if we're thinking about the tactile sensations of taxidermy, not necessarily the cutting, but even like the ways in which we describe taxidermy a lot Mm -hmm. of the time or ways in which I found myself describing taxidermy taxidermy or reading about taxidermy, it's very hands-on, right? So it's this idea of opening, um, moving or touching or like a kind of tenderness or or even like an idea of power or authority over something, which can oftentimes be something very erotic. Yeah, just the idea of, having like control and this character that I've that I've created in this novel Jessa is a is a person who has deep control issues so I think the idea of taxidermy which is something that's where she, it's her kingdom she has complete authority and control over it the idea of thinking about people in her life specifically about romantic interests having like complete authority and control over those kinds of things is like inherently erotic for her and i think yeah power dynamics in general oftentimes it's just something that's very erotic but sure like anything that involves the senses in that kind of way i i don't know how to talk about this without completely freaking out our listeners but um (laughs) uh, a sexual relationship often involves a kind of earthiness and a level of comfort with yeah. bodily fluids and touching yeah. people in places we typically don't touch people we know uh, and, and going places, you know, going places physically. And there's sort of a way in which taxidermy is on a parallel rail with that, too. There's like just blood and stuff that's inside organs. And I mean, there's just a way in which there's no escaping it. And it seems in the book yeah. as though yeah. there's a, a parallelism. There's a lot, right? Because there's a lot of messiness in taxidermy, but there's like lots of messiness in sex. So there's um, this way of thinking too that I'm very interested in that I really wanted to bring to the book where we have these binaries or these very strange dichotomies that we put on 
human beings or just things in, in our life to just categorize them, I think, to, to make things seem more simplistic, right? What's ugly and what's pretty or what's clean and what's dirty. And most of the time, especially if we're thinking about bodies in general, even outside of sex, like bodies are inherently messy. Bodies are like, you know, in this kind of state that's like, even when they're clean, they're not clean. It's a body, you know, where they're made of flesh and they move and they secrete. So intimacy is very messy in that kind of way. You know, if you are in love with a person and you wake up in bed in the morning with them and, and you lean over and you both kiss each other first thing in the morning, and you feel that kind of love. But there's also, right, you both probably have bad breath. Mm-hmm. But that's like part of just like the, the messy int- intimacy of bodies. And I think that taxidermy is a way to kind of, in the book anyway, I was able to kind of use it to be like, you know, these things are like beautiful, but they're also messy. And there's, this, there's a very smeary spectrum um, and things aren't just clean or, or dirty. Right. There's a, an Elvis Costello line about that uh, uh, lovers face to face in the morning. And he says, good manners and bad breath get you yeah. nowhere. <laughs> um, so, and this is probably something we'll be exploring in, in the next interview on, on the show. There's a sort of code or there's a way in which if taxidermy is a kind of necromancy, a kind of magic that gets worked, a thing that is dead, then comes back to something more closely resembling its life. You, you almost feel that there's a code, things that you're willing to do, things that you're not willing to do. At one point, your your protagonist, Jessalyn, in order to make ends meet, winds up doing a lot of stuff of, you know, gluing antlers onto fish or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just because the people want that or they want all kinds of weird stuff that doesn't really conform to the taxidermist code. There, there's a moment where I don't want to, like, spoil anything. Thing, although I don't think this is a big spoiler, but but another character uh, runs over some raccoons and then kind of wants them reconstituted. You know, I don't know. Maybe your your protagonist Jessalyn is hearing some other inner set of commandments about what can and can't be done. Yeah. I I think there is, right, because there's the idea of taxidermy as work, right, getting a paycheck or that kind of thing. But then there's the opposite side of that coin, which is taxidermy as art or something that's a part of you. So it's, it's not just like something people are doing for commissions or money, which it it is that too. But oftentimes it's like, it's, it's a part of themselves that they're putting into it. Right. Mm -hmm. The positioning or the making or the scene setting, or even like idea of like the world building of creating something of Frankensteining something back to life is is very much a part of the self. It's putting yourself into it. So there would be this kind of idea, right? Like a, a question mark of like what's acceptable to do if, if it's if it's part of you going into it, if it's something you're making, if there's ownership of art over it, the kind of question mark of is this something I'm gonna feel okay living with if it's if my name is on it or or part of me is is part of it. I think too, there's this interesting idea about what's okay to taxidermy. Mm-hmm. There's like even a part in the book where she has questions about, cause this, this also isn't a spoiler. Her father dies very early on in the book and it's the kind of the catalyst for, for many of the things that happen. But the idea of, you know, what would it be to like taxidermy another human, right? Like, mm-hmm. or what's the idea of taxidermying like pets because people have pets and they want them taxidermied and then having them in the home. Like, what is that? Is there taboos associated with it? So I think a lot of that boils down to, right, like paychecks versus creative control or, you know, creative content like for the self. 
Right. So um, last question, one of the sort of last moments we have in the book doesn't involve a dead animal. It involves a living baby owl. So explain why that is. Why are, why are we doing this flashback to father and daughter talking uh, about the care of this baby owl they found? Yeah, I think too, because it kind of brings up what you what you mentioned earlier, the idea of people who perform taxidermy, you know, they don't just like kind of revel in death. It's it's very much about life or the idea of the joy that animals bring people. So in that in that last scene too, I wanted to show something between Jessa and her father that was outside of the scope of the shop. Because most of the time, it's it's them dealing with like how they how they had a working relationship with each other, or how taxidermy figured into that, and their relationship, especially towards the end of the book, and how Jess is remembering her father. I wanted it to very much be expanded outside of that scope of of death and include the very living moments that they shared together, and how the times that they shared within their family included moments of brightness and levity, and also just things that were funny that they shared together as a family just to be able to show the like the three dimensions of, of the relationship and that their relationship wasn't just flat on taxidermy, no matter how she chose to remember things originally. All right. We have to stop there. We have uh, other taxidermists to, to speak to, but we've been talking not to a taxidermist, but to a novelist, <laughs> Kristen Arnett, uh, author of Mostly Dead Things, uh, a novel of family and love and Florida. Where else are you going to find all those dead animals? Uh, <laughs> so thanks for talking to us. Thank you. All right, we'll take a little break and we'll come right back. You'll be my taxidermy, taxidermy. Hey, I'll keep you hanging on a bedroom wall. And if I ever move to Albuquerque, I'm gonna strap you to my Chevy and bottle. I don't gotta say a word, baby, I don't mind. I keep you dusted off, keep you looking alive. You'll be my And we are back. Uh, we are talking today about taxidermy uh, as a reality and a metaphor, I guess, and maybe something else as well. Who knows? Uh, Beth Beverly is joining us now, a couture taxidermist and owner of Diamond Tooth Taxidermy. Her work has been featured in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, on AMC's uh, former series about competitive taxidermy, Immortalized. And most recently, it turns out that Beth Beverly is the person you call if you need some no longer living squirrels uh, to appear in the hit series Stranger Things on Netflix. Uh, so, and many other things uh, about Beth, Beth Beverly as well, which we will attempt to explore right now. Hi, welcome to our conversation. Hi, thank you, Colin. The pleasure's mine. So maybe the first thing, to just in talking to you, a woman, I'm immediately violating a lot of people's cliched or stereotypical ideas about who a taxidermist is. In fact, we know a little bit about how people sometimes mentally picture a taxidermist. I don't really know anything about birds. My hobby is stuffing things. You know, taxidermy. And I guess I'd just rather stuff birds because... I hate the look of beasts when they're stuffed. You know, foxes and chimps. Some some people even stuff dogs and cats, but... Oh, I can't do that. I think only birds look well stuffed because... Well, because they're kind of passive to begin with. It's a strange hobby. Curious. Uncommon, too. Oh, I imagine so. And it's, uh, it's not as expensive as you'd think. It's cheap, really. You know, needles, thread, sawdust. 
The chemicals are the only thing that, that, that cost anything. A man should have a hobby. Well, it's... It's, it's more than a hobby. A hobby's supposed to pass the time, not fill it. So that's the that's the that's the horrible stereotype. That's Norman Bates for those of you who don't recognize that clip. So weirdo loner guy um, wants to be all by himself in a room full of dead animals. My sense as we've prepared for the show is it couldn't be further from the truth. Well, I mean, there is a little weirdo in me okay. and many of my colleagues, and I think just the very nature of the craft of taxidermy lends itself to the loner type. You're surrounded by dead things most mm. of the day. But um, I have to also say that it actually is a very expensive hobby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the tools and supplies are quite pricey, which is why if you're ever in the market for taxidermy or any custom work, it actually is quite expensive. And it's because it's not a cheap way to fill the time. Um, I, I want to talk about what drew you to this. I, I guess, well, Norman's talking about birds. It was it began a little bit for you with just seeing birds that had randomly died. You know, as we see them, they hit a window or something like that, and and they're gone. Exactly. I was a window dresser in Center City, and I would constantly see birds that had flown into the the office buildings downtown, and it broke my heart to think that they were just getting like kicked off the sidewalk and into gutters or thrown into trash cans when their feathers were so beautiful. And then seeing roadkill, like a beautiful puffy fox on the side of the road. It just seemed like such beautiful materials going to waste and what a dishonor to um, these magnificent creatures. So I just bought a book on basic taxidermy and taught myself and started kind of discreetly picking up carcasses on my daily commute. Nothing the least bit odd about that. Um, so, <laughs> so, but that enabled you to be an inadequate taxidermist, right? You really had to get serious about this at a certain point. Maybe give us a sense of the almost monk-like dedication that's required to become really good at taxidermy. Many, many hours. So um, I started teaching myself in 2000. And then in 2010, I finally decided to just hunker down and go to school and learn from a professional. And that made all the difference in the world. And um, I spent three months living in a cabin by myself in the Poconos, basically just immersed in taxidermy day in and day out. That's how I got all licensed up and got all my skills and was able to really start making uh, truly professional work. There's so much that goes into this. Although one of the things that became clear watching your videos and uh, reading Kristen's book is it takes a lot of strength too, right? Just to just to sheerly do what you have to do. Maybe you can describe what it is that requires elbow grease on steroids. <laughs> Well, I imagine that she grew up in an environment where um, her dad was working on much larger animals. I do occasionally work on, you know, animals that are 100 plus pounds, and that's where it gets pretty grueling. You're hoisting cadavers essentially up into the air and onto meat hooks, and not just the heaviness of a specimen that I might be working with, but also hours and hours of scraping fat off flesh and wringing water and chemicals out of hides and lots and lots of sanding of the foam mannequins that go under the skin. And it's a lot of 
um, resilience, lots of delicate finger work too. So gripping tools, mm. I'm sure um, there's arthritis in my future. <laughs> well, I, I, it is in everybody's future if it makes you feel any <laughs> better. Uh, there's life after arthritis. I'm proof of that. So, um, okay, good. <laughs> so, and, but I didn't get it from taxidermy. So, um, so you are sometimes referred to as a rogue taxidermist. And I assume that means, I mean, there's some people who they make taxidermy kind of constantly at the kind of diorama level. You know, this is going to look as much like an otter as I can possibly make it look like so we can show people walking through a museum what an otter looks like. Or I, this is going to be a tro- some hunter's trophy, and so it should look as much like a, a, a living deer as possible. You're working a lot with wearables and things like that. So tell us tell us what you do. Yeah, well, for for what I do, I call it alternative taxidermy or couture taxidermy. And I think myself and uh, many of the other artists in this sort of taxidermy movement, it's more of using the craft of taxidermy as a means to an end and not the final product. Like the people who I teach and the people who I meet that are also practicing this, it's it's combining, you know, like animal fiber preservation with woodwork and with millinery and with jewelry production. Whereas um, what you were referring to earlier would be like natural historians and commercial taxidermists who work with hunters to preserve their trophies. So while it is using traditional taxidermy techniques, there's, it's more of a way of expressing ourselves and not staying completely true to nature, I suppose. Um, so one of the things that you do is you, you, you said millinery, so you make hats. I think sometimes even come some kind of bridal headpieces. I'm trying to imagine the bride who wants to wear a little coyote uh, uh, on her head as she's uh, walking down the aisle. I get some really kind of adventurous and open-minded bridal clients, and I love them. I had this one woman who... She got my number off my card or my website and she called me up and she said, I was just proposed to. And the first thing I said was, I have to call my taxidermist. (laughs) (laughs) She commissioned me to make this beautiful little, um, it's like a tiny little goat head with um, sort of crystals and stuff to sort of sit on top of her head. And I know it's not for everybody, but it looked really fantastic on her. And so it's more for, folks who don't want to go the traditional veil route. It's Mm -hmm. for someone who really wants to make a splash on their big day, so to speak. Right. So, you know, and I've also looked at some of your other uh, headpieces, these fascinators that use burn wings and things like that. And of course, you know, the the history of this is so different from what you're trying to do. The history of this is sometimes the entire elimination of species because some kind of uh, hat feather became in vogue for a while. You're kind of doing the opposite thing, right? You're not using any animals that have died except by accident. You're, you're still using kind of roadkill and, and animals who died on farms. Exactly. That's my whole philosophy is using, I mean, there's enough death already. Why make more? I'm just going to kind of be a, a human uh, vulture, so to speak, and <laughs> collect off of nature's spoils. So I work with farmers, local farmers who will call me during birthing season when they have stillborn goats and lambs or chickens. And um, 
other farmers who do very like small production and humane uh, meat raising. And sometimes I'll just go pick up some of the byproducts of a slaughter. And there is roadkill too. Unfortunately, I learned after I went to school that there's many rules and regulations around birds. Mm -hmm. So I don't just go about picking up random birds anymore. No. And then that's good too. So, and I guess you I guess you also feel some kind of obligation to not leave these animals unused in other ways, right? I guess one of the things you sometimes do is make sure that the if there's meat it can be eaten and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So I do work with hunters, uh not as much as a commercial taxidermist would, but when when I do work with them, they'll bring me uh, I don't know, like a skunk or something that was a problem animal. And instead of letting that meat go to waste, I'll eat it mm. because it's it's perfectly good meat. It's a little unconventional, but it's surprisingly delicious. I've had coyote and uh, possum, raccoon, squirrel. When I did the squirrels for that uh, Stranger Things show, <laughs> I actually wound up making a delicious stew from some of those too. <laughs> so yeah, so they served humankind in many different ways. Uh, those squirrels, they entertained us on Netflix, and they <laughs> and they fed you. So you know, there's a whole other area of this, and that is people who. It's not that I guess that they can't accept that a pet or something has died, but they just don't. Like when my dogs die, you know, I get them cremated and. I don't want to see him again because I'm so sad. Uh, I don't want to be reminded how sad I am. But not everybody's like that, right? So do you get requests from people who are saying, yeah, no, I really have to sort of hold on to this cherished pet of mine any way I can? I do. And um, I realize that it's a very divisive topic, the pet preservation aspect of taxidermy. So I usually try to guide my clients through it and make sure they've really thought this out and this is really what they want and also make sure people know that there's many options as far as pet preservation. They could have a full life-size mount of Fluffy the cat, or they could just have one little paw preserved as sort of a keychain charm or even just the hide. I had this woman who she had a giant husky and all she wanted was the hide just to kind of wrap around her like a blanket at night. And it was, it made for a really beautiful piece that she just keeps draped over her couch now. And, um, I realize it's not for everyone, and I just try to keep an open mind myself. You know, no one should be told how to grieve. Everyone should be given the freedom to walk through that experience however they feel fit. But it is becoming more and more popular, the pet preservation. Um, uh, lastly, one thing that we just missed, unfortunately, was your uh, alternative taxidermy uh, competition uh, in Philadelphia. I don't know, is there... Is there a new wave taxidermy? Is there a way in which taxidermy <laughs> changes and becomes something different from what was a decade ago? I think so. I think there's, I think about starting 10 years ago, probably before then, but I became aware of the scene, so to speak, 10 years ago, where there's this community all around the world of a sort of alternative or rogue taxidermist making some some very different pieces and expressing ourselves in very different ways. And so what I like to do is once a year gather up the community, at least in Philadelphia, and we can all have a night playing dress up and drinking cocktails and showing off our latest work. 
Well, uh, Beth Beverly, uh, you are delightful and fun. I don't think you would make a very good Alfred Hitchcock movie, and I mean that as a compliment. Uh, <laughs> <Shut>. <laughs> the owner of Diamond Tooth Taxidermy. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks again. Have a great day. Okay, you too. I used to tell her keep her hands up off my head, off my head. But now she thinks she got it like that. like that I used to tell her keep her hands up off my head, off my head. Mm, I think she got it like Hi, that Maybe like you could wear my hat Just make sure you give it back Maybe you could wear my hat If you got something to make We're going to end our show about taxidermy with taxidermy under glass. Uh, I mean, quite literally taxidermy under glass. Uh, joining us now is John White Knight, educator, artist, uh, the author of Under Glass, A Victorian Obsession. First of all, welcome to our conversation. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, maybe begin by talking about what happened to taxidermy during the Victorian era. Prior to that, it's it's pretty much the work of naturalist scientists, people who are trying to study animals, maybe not something that you would typically have in your home. So what changes? Well, one of the main changes was at that point the colonization of the world so that all of these different uh, countries and areas were being discovered, all these animals were being discovered, birds, whatnot. And also you had the Industrial Revolution, which created a middle and an upper middle class, so people could afford these things. But it was also the obsession with nature. And the main difference is they wanted to bring it into their home and live with it. One of the things that you describe, uh, and, and we should say that you have a large collection of this kind of taxidermied art, is this is kind of the Victorian, it's part of the entertainment center. I mean, I suppose you'd have somebody who knew how to play the piano, that'd be another part of it. But in terms of right. what you looked at, there, there would be these collections, right? Absolutely. And uh, it was de rigueur, as they say, uh, to have these things in your home to, to show people that you were aware that you were a, an educated person. And many of these things, of course, were not only uh, decorative and artistic, but they were educational. So that many of the pieces, when they were made, came with keys to the different specimens so that someone could stand in front of it and actually look at a kiwi or a cockatoo or a platypus. So, yeah, it wasn't just decorative. It was educational as well. Yeah, so we have these, you know, titanic figures who begin to get uh, the world acqu differently acquainted with uh, nature. Darwin uh, is an obvious one. But another one right. who's important here, I think, is Audubon, in the sense that the other thing that happens, as I understand it, is that taxidermy goes from this pretty static-looking thing where the animal is posed in a very obvious way and often with this kind of rictus uh, grin if it's, a, if it's a mammal that exposes its teeth and it just kind of staring at you. From that to a less posed, more naturalistic uh, look that maybe parallels the kind of artwork that, that uh, the two-dimensional artwork that Audubon is doing? Yes, absolutely. It's a very good point. Up until the era of Audubon and the early 19th century, everything was presented, in a, as you say, in a very stiff, I call it a rigor mortis type position. And what Audubon and the, the other naturalists did, specifically in their representation two-dimensionally, is they created drama and theater. 
And now the animals were in natural poses. They were dramatic with their mouths open or perhaps their beaks open. Their wings were spread. So it was theater two-dimensionally. And then that theater went over into the three-dimensional part of taxidermy and they created drama under glass. Another interesting driving force of this seems to have been Victorian women of a class that created leisure time. It's funny because we've had other conversations on this show about how the stereotype of the taxidermist is male, although that seems to be changing an awful lot right now. But in the period that comprises your collection, Victorian women were doing this, what, as kind of a hobby, right? Yes. It's often overlooked that women were participating in this. And in fact, it was suggested in many periodicals and uh, many books on taxidermy. I mean, there's, there's one book, it's the Ladies' Journal of Parlor Pastimes and Art, and it says something like, you know, you, could just, uh, you should stuff anything from a, <laughs> you know, instructions from stuffing anything from a hummingbird to a, a chimpanzee. And there were famous women during that era uh, who were taxidermists and naturalists. So I, I would like to see them brought into the forefront also. Right. So not just a hobby, uh, a profession in some cases uh, for women. So there seem yeah. to be two things, uh, two kind of aesthetics that are a little bit in conflict with one another. Uh, on the one hand, yeah, you have this kind of Audubon, Darwin, science-driven, let's try to exhibit this animal, you know, with wings spread or, you know, in a pretty naturalistic pose. Let's try to maybe even create, particularly under glass, something approaching habitat so the animal uh, isn't... Uh, extracted from its surroundings. Let's try to make this animal look as much as possible as it would in the wild. And then mm -hmm. there's another strand uh, that is exemplified, I think, in your connect, uh, in your collection uh, by a monkey riding a goat. And the goat has a saddle. The monkey's holding reins. So this, mm -hmm. this I believe, I could be wrong, uh, sir, but I believe this does not occur in nature, not typically, uh, monkeys riding no. goats. So there's something else going on here, something that Audubon probably would not have approved of. So, so what's happening now, there? Well, what was happening, and I, I think that the, the kickoff was the uh, Crystal Palace exhibit, mm -hmm. the great exhibition in 1851. And taxidermists were invited from uh, countries all over the world. But one of the taxidermists, his name was Hermann Pluquet, he brought what he called his whimsical creatures. And that is when he started taking animals and putting them in anthropomorphic poses and anthropomorphic settings. Uh, the general feeling is Walter Potter, who is a big name in that, we think, went to the Crystal Palace, saw these, these things as a boy. And he was a young taxidermist. He was playing with taxidermy then. And then he went on to create his own museum of curiosities and include all of this anthropomorphic stuff. But other taxidermists were doing it as well. There's a there's an element of, of whimsy here. I mean, you really first of all, you really do have a taxidermied uh, goat uh, being ridden by a taxidermied monkey. Uh, each of these creatures have interesting backstories. Why don't you just quickly sketch these out for us? Well, with the with the goat and the monkey, the story that came with the piece was that the goat was a, a Whiston Park goat, which was a, a big manor house in in England, and the goat constantly got out of its paddock. But one day, it did get out of the paddock, and it was hit by a team of horses, and they sent the carcass of the goat to Mr. Potter. And about the same time, there was a pet monkey 
uh, in a nearby town, and the monkey would come and steal fruit from the greengrocer. The greengrocer had enough of it, so he came with a bucket of ice water, threw it on the monkey, the monkey went into shock and died, and it went to Mr. Potter. So he thought that these two rascals should ride off into, you know, eternity. <laughs> That's right. Two troublemakers. Also, a good Too lesson. Me, yeah. Not not everybody should do the ice bucket challenge, too. I think that's another no, lesson. No, I think I, yeah. Mm-hmm. The monkey teaches us that, that <laughs> lesson good, as well. Not good for monkeys. No, definitely not. So give us a sense of the, the scope of, of your collection. It's a pretty significant uh, collection of, of animals. I, I'm sure you're used to giving kind of a thumbnail. What have you got there? Well, I started collecting this stuff 46 years ago. And right now, I have no idea how many domes or how many cases are here in the house, but it's dozens and dozens and dozens containing, you know, anywhere from single bird specimens up to cases that have over 50 uh, birds or more in them. So uh, to put a number on it is almost impossible (laughs) at this point. (laughs) one thing right. that you have that you do have which i've i've seen also is in some cases these birds are i don't know if animated is the right word yes uh, this was all done uh, predominantly by the french uh, in paris from about 1850 to, to the first world war and there was one fellow uh, he was the he was the key uh, maker of these his name was blaise bontam and these are singing birds and warbling birds and birds that flit and move back and forth. So these are the automatons, and they use the natural bird skins to cover the armatures underneath the dome. You know, the, the whole works. Yeah. And I'm also wondering, just, you know, having that in, in your house, and you know, whether it's just beautiful, exquisitely uh, posed birds, do you have feel like you have a personal relationship with all that? Does it feel like there's other beings in the house with you? Well, it's, it's funny you should mention that. I do restore the antique pieces, so I do establish a rather intimate relationship with them. And in some cases, uh, those pieces that I have really worked on for hours or weeks, I tend to give them names. So <laughs> they do have their own personalities. And yeah, I guess you could say there's they they have their own spirit in the house. I'd like to think that everybody is happy here. All spirits are happy. When you so say I think they we, feel, yeah, they feel quite at home. When you say you give them yeah. names, I mean, do you have like a bird named Janet, or is it more like Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail? Uh, no, there's a kiwi named Kermit. Uh, there's a platypus named uh, Priscilla, and there we do have uh, stuffed dogs, mm-hmm. which w- it was very popular to stuff your pet right. uh, during the late Victorian Edwardian era. So yes, the dogs do have names. Okay, so uh, on a kind of more serious note, not that it, that it wasn't dead serious, but on a, on a somewhat <laughs> more serious note, I mean, animals are going extinct all, all the time, and one of the things that you've done is to try to um, have the taxidermied versions of some of these animals who tragically simply aren't aren't around anymore. Tell us more about that. Well, at this point, our focus is on acquiring extinct specimens and also some specimens from the 19th century that are now specifically going extinct. One prime example, we acquired a very, very rare parrot from New Zealand. It was taken in the 19th century, but now that parrot, there are only 200 of them left in New Zealand. And, you know, as we know, if anyone who pays attention to anything, 
these things are going, going, gone. So I would like to think that when I am gone, that these will go on after me and um, be examples for people to see, you know, three-dimensionally. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. as as we're winding up here, um, it might be interesting to get your perspective. There seems to be some, some new interest in, in all this and maybe a new generation uh, of taxidermists coming along. What do they look like to you, particularly with your emphasis on the Victorian era? As far as the actual doing of it, mm-hmm. it's, it's women. It's young women that are taking these courses and doing these things. So I couldn't be more delighted because I felt like, you know, odd man out 40-some years ago collecting this stuff and having it in my home. And now mm-hmm. it's back. They're, they're doing composite taxidermy, which is, uh, you know, putting together different animal parts. They are doing anthropomorphic. Mm-hmm. So... These young people are putting aside this kind of vanilla and beige world that was done in the 20th century, and they're saying, you know, there's something else there. And also to start to recognize taxidermy as an art form. Uh, John White Knight, thank you for joining us. A teacher, as he said, author, artist, the author of Under Glass, a Victorian obsession. Uh, Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Colin, very much. And that's the end of our Taxidermy Show. Special thanks to Betsy Kaplan, senior producer, who put this whole thing together. Kyone Wolf, uh, who made it all sound so good. We'll be back tomorrow with, as usual, another show. I look up to the little bird that glides across the sky. He sings the clearest melody It makes me want to cry It makes me want to sit right down and cry, cry, cry